what industry cares about is what's the cost of technical debt. I don't care whether it was a suboptimal decision or a huge design flaw that has to get fixed, you know, or severe defects that we know is going to have to be fixed that we just discovered. Uh, the fact is I'm going to have to spend money fixing this stuff. Welcome to OWASP 24-7, sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from the Nexus Community Project, supporting millions of open source developers worldwide. Well, I'm uh, Dr. Bill Curtis. I'm executive director of the Consortium for IT Software Quality, which is a, an organization uh, chartered through the Object Management Group and co-founded by the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon, uh, chartered to create international standards for evaluating size and quality of software from source code to really get these measures down to the source code level. Uh, in addition, I'm the chief scientist, senior vice president, and head of CAS Research Labs uh, at uh, CAS Software. You've been at this for a while when I was uh, looking at the things that you've been working on. Back in 1980s, even, you were working on the uh, psychological and the behavioral processes of software development. That sounds right. I started in GE Aerospace back in 1978, where we had contracts uh, in G GE Space Division to evaluate uh, whether you could predict programmer performance using software metrics, things like Halstead and McCabe and whatnot, and uh, whether structured programming actually made a difference. Uh, and then I went to ITT and created a worldwide uh, repository of productivity and quality data so that we could track quality across all IT's far-flung businesses. Uh, then when MCC formed down in Austin, Texas, the fifth generation uh, computer research operation, I went down there to help build the user interface lab, the usability lab, and then uh, joined Les Bellotti and built the in a software technology program and built a program on uh, studying how people really design large systems. What's the actual process people go through and what kind of tools could we give them uh, to help that? Uh, then as MCC closed down, I went to Watts Humphrey, asked me to come take his position at the Software Engineering Institute up at Carnegie Mellon University. And Watts had created this process maturity framework, uh, but we needed a model. We needed to make that, we needed to kind of build that into practices. So I led the team uh, when I was director of the process program, led the team that built the capability maturity model, the CMM, uh, built it on top of Watts's original process maturity framework. So that became a, a big standard. I could only stay in Pittsburgh for two years. I had to come back home to Austin. And when I got there, a couple of uh, colleagues and I started a company called TerraQuest, which was a basically a CMM consultancy. And, and uh, we ran that for 12 years till Borland Software bought us out. Uh, and I was at Borland for a couple of years and then uh, went off and did some independent consulting. And then uh, Cast Software found me and we I realized they're back where I started, back in the, uh, the software measurement area. We're trying to measure the quality of software, the size of software, and, and to really do it at both the architecture and coding level. So I got pretty excited and joined Cast as their chief scientist and created Cast Research Labs. And, uh, and it's part of the side, on the side, the... SCI and, the, and, and especially the object management group, OMG, were getting requests 
to come up with international standards for measuring quality from source code because uh, this was starting to appear in outsourcing contracts, but everybody had a different definition uh, of what they meant by uh, of what they meant by uh, reliability or security or performance efficiency or whatever. So we basically they they formed the consortium. They asked me to be the head of it, and we have been for the last seven years building international standards for measuring size and quality from source code. Uh, so that's been pretty exciting. And as part of that, we created this measure of technical debt because a lot of people talk about it. Executives like to use the term uh, and like to want a way to quantify it. And there really wasn't a standard. So we built a standard to quantify technical debt. The research that you've done has been very deep. And so when I looked at the stuff that you'd done in the 80s, my first response was what you were doing that, is that applicable now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, when we published our our findings on how large systems are designed, that's still true. I mean, now that people have, have really broke it down into shorter and shorter iterations. But when they build really large systems, uh, you still have the same problems. Uh, you know, the, the, the struggle with coordination, uh, especially when you get it into large collections of teams building large systems, the fact that the requirements are incomplete, poorly stated, sometimes they're conflicting, uh, you know, and the, the, the lack of domain knowledge, uh, which, you know, the lack of knowing something about telecom or banking or avionics or whatever you're building software for, you know, you're trained in computer science, but you're not trained in in the, uh, the particular domain you're trying to apply software to. So those are still challenges. They always were they will be uh, for quite some time. We, and we tried to make headway. The biggest problem we have is every time we come up with a solution that makes a difference, we start building bigger systems, and now we open up a whole new Pandora's box of challenges. Uh, so structured programming solves some problems, but all of a sudden the system started getting huge, and that wasn't enough. Right? We created design techniques, but then the systems got even bigger, and now we're into systems of systems. Uh, so it, you know, every time we come up with a solution, we just throw up more challenges, and we've got to come up with new solutions for. So uh, some of the old problems are still there. Some of the findings are still relevant. Uh, but the fact is, even even as we create uh, new methodologies, agile and whatnot, the fact is that we, we, we're going to produce challenges uh, that even drive needed advances beyond agile and DevOps. So we just you, it's just the fact that the more systems that people can dream up, the more capabilities that society can want, you know, the more challenging it is for us in software to try to meet that need with high quality systems. And the more we have to worry about the processes and design methods and techniques and languages and tools and all these other things required to keep up with the demand for advanced software. Your team is going to be delivering a presentation at Hack NYC in New York in May on technical debt. When we're looking at technical debt, a lot of people are thinking, okay, this is for legacy systems that we're trying to figure out how we measure uh, the technical debt in legacy systems. Are you guys able to do that now? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, I wish that technical debt were only relevant to legacy systems. Tragically, people are building legacy even as we speak. I mean, it, it, it continues to be a problem with, 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 with having to get software out really fast and making decisions that you know are suboptimal that you're going to have to fix in the future or just making mistakes and not realizing it. And, and somebody's going to have to repair that in the future. So technical debt is a relevant concept. 
uh, there's several versions of it. There's a the classic version that Ward Cunningham stated back in 1992 when he said, look, to get systems out, to start getting business value from them, we make, you know, to get them out quick, we make decisions that we know aren't optimal, that we know we're going to have to come back and fix. And that builds up a debt because you're going to have to pay for the time it takes to fix that later on in the future. Right? So that was his original decision. It was, it was it was decisions that you the conscious decisions about creating suboptimal solutions just to get the code into operation now it, what industry cares about is what's the cost of technical debt. I don't care whether it was a suboptimal decision or a huge design flaw that that has to get fixed, you know, or severe defects that we know is going to have to be fixed that we just discovered. Uh, the fact is, I'm going to have to spend money fixing this stuff. And so, from a from industry's point of view, technical debt is anything that I know I have to fix, and I'm going to have to spend money fixing that in the future. So, what industry wants is an estimate of the effort to fix the things we know we have to fix. It's not everything. You don't have to fix every flaw because some of them are, are benign. They're, they're, they're so small that they're, they're really not, not, a big, not a big issue. But there are some that are severe. If I've got you know, SQL injections sitting in my system, I've got to get those out because that, that's a higher risk. If I've, if I've created uh, some design or made some design decisions that limit scalability, that's going to be a problem if the system has to grow over time. Uh, if I've got expensive operations inside loops and suddenly it's working on a big table and that table's growing, I've got a huge potential performance problem. I've got to get that fixed. So these are issues we really want to look at violations of good architectural and coding practice that you know you have to fix, whether it was conscious whether it was made as a, a conscious suboptimal decision or not really is not the issue. The issue is we know it's there and we know we're going to have to fix it in the next several releases because it does present an operational risk or it's going to cost a lot just to maintain that piece of software. It's going to limit something we want to do like scale the software. So what I want to be able to do then is estimate the effort to fix these violations. Uh, and the way we built the technical debt standard at CISC, we had standards for four uh, quality characteristics, reliability, security, performance efficiency, and maintainability. And those were, were built on top of detecting violations of good architectural and coding practice in each of those four areas that you know you had to fix. Um, you know, there's lots of different violations, but but the requirement we had when we built those measures was that it were only going to include violations that we realize we must fix in the very near future uh, because of the risk or because of the cost they incur. Uh, and so we, with those, those were the standards for the quality. And we went back and said, let's look at those violations. There were 86 violations of good architectural and coding practice across those four uh, those four measures. And we said, we asked professional programmers, especially those doing Java and .NET work, how long would it take you to fix that mistake in the optimal situation where it's a well-coded component and it's not highly coupled to the system? And then, so we got, we kind of got a lot of estimates and we, we kind of found sort of the average. And then we have ways to go in and analyze the code to say, well, this code's a lot more complex than the simplest case, so we're going to have to add some time onto it. Uh, so, we, so we have an adjustment factor. And uh, so we go in, you can go in and detect these violations, these 86 violations in the code, apply the adjusted effort to each of the violations you detect, uh, sum it up, and you've got an estimate of the effort you're going to have to spend 
to fix these things and you can put a you can put a financial cost on that you can you can uh, put it in dollars or euros or indian rupees or russian rubles or whatever you want to to apply to it uh, but the fact is we can we can get an estimate it's not a perfect estimate but at least it's a correlate of what it's going to, to cost to really fix the things you know you have to fix in the code. And it's based off an international standard, these OMG standards for these four quality characteristics. So that's that helps. I mean, it helps managers and executives get a sense of what kind of cost am I facing in corrective maintenance and which of my applications are, am I going to have to spend the most time on because they've got the most, uh, the, the largest number of these severe violations. The thing that I I struggle with, and it sounds like you're starting to get a handle on it or have a handle on it, Gary McGraw and I have talked several times about trying to find the cost of fixing something now during development versus fixing it down the road. It sounds like you've got a way to do that. Well, actually, our, yeah, our estimates are based on the cost of fixing it down the road. Right. And and it's really just the developer cost to get it, you know, to get it fixed and through their unit tests and into a build. Right. And then everything after that, you know, depending on, you know, those costs vary a lot based on how many things you're dealing with and and what have you. Uh, so this is the cost up to kind of going through unit tests and submitting it to a build. Uh, there are arguments you know, the classic argument says it costs 10 times as much once you get into test and 10 times more than that when you get into operation. Uh, Tim Menzies and his his team down at uh, University of North Carolina State, uh, or North Carolina State University, have challenged that. They've actually found that it's not always 10 times. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's really not much more but than, than it w would cost uh, in development. But here's the proviso. If it's an architecturally complex defect, once you've built a lot more stuff around it, it is going to be a lot more expensive because you've got a number of components you've got to fix. It's not just a single component defect, which is a lot easier to fix. Uh, if you have installed this software in a lot of places, uh, and it's going to—it's not going to be a simple automated update. Uh, then you got a lot of cost. I mean, you go into embedded software. I've got embedded chips sitting out there and, you know, Lord knows how many devices. Uh, and depending on, you know, what you have to do to update that, uh, if you have to send a, somebody out to replace those chips, suddenly that's really expensive. Uh, so, and I may, I may want to prove, and if it's life critical system, I may want to prove the correctness of my of my fix prior to submitting this thing, that gets a lot more expensive. So there are a lot of different factors that are going to to affect the cost of fixing this in the real world, uh, beyond just what it costs for the programmer to, to, to make their correction, run their unit tests, uh, and then submit this thing to the build. How does the proliferation of microservices affect what you're doing? Well, my, you know, microservices is, is a is a design option uh, to try to, to to sort of simplify the proliferation of having the same thing a lot of places. Uh, and we've gone through these d design iterations. Every, you know, we've had gone through uh, similar to this with service-oriented architectures and whatnot. The, the problem is that you can still have bad code. I mean, if somebody gets in a rush or if somebody doesn't really understand 
how they should structure the component they're building or they don't understand the application or the domain, they can still make mistakes that are going to have to be fixed. So while there are problems that microservices solve, there are still some classic ways people make mistakes that are that are still out there. So, you know, I hope microservices in general make systems uh, certainly cheaper to build because I don't have to build the same thing over and over and over. You know, I can just call on a microservice. Uh, but at the same time, we want to make sure that that's a high-quality component uh, that I'm calling. And if I don't trust it, I'll just rebuild it, and then I've lost all the advantage of having microservices. So uh, we still need to go through the process of, of verifying that the code is is of sufficient quality, doesn't have known problems, doesn't have security problems, uh, and what have you. When you use the terminology components, the first thing that comes to my mind is open source. It sounds like originally you started dealing with uh, the source code. Have you moved into cover open source now? Well, open source is source code. Right? I mean, they, I would actually probably not pull necessarily the source code, but yeah. I mean, you can apply this. This is this can be applied to any kind of software, the metrics and the technical debt. I don't, don't care whether it's open source, whether it's internal proprietary, whether it's third party. Uh, you know, off-the-shelf, uh, commercial off-the-shelf software or what have you. It's still software, and you should evaluate it. Uh, and I would want to know that it's been evaluated if I'm going to incorporate it into my system. You know, a lot of people are, are when you look at the Equifax problem, they they took an open-source uh, component and, and hadn't applied the patches they should have applied. So, you know, these are these issues exist regardless of whether it's open-source, internal, or customers of our third-party supplied software. It's software, uh, and, and the same problems can occur. When people come to hear Tracy and Lev talk at Heck NYC, what uh, can they expect to hear during the presentation? Well, they can expect to hear about the technical debt uh, standard that we've built, that OMG had, that's TISC built, sponsors of TISC built, and it is now an OMG approved standard. They can hear about that. They'll hear a little bit of background about why. Uh, they'll hear how we constructed the standard. They'll hear about the CIS metrics that are the foundation. And then they'll hear about how this could be used uh, by managers, executives, and others to evaluate the, uh, the, the expense they have sitting out in front of them in corrective maintenance. When you talk about a standard like this. One of the things I like to, to go to immediately in my mind is, is there a way to automate the processes that you're asking people to adhere to? Well, the CIS, the interesting thing is CISC was chartered to create automated standards. Uh, and so we, the only things we do are, are defined specifications for automating the analysis of these various standards we create. We have one for automated function points. Uh, these four standards I talked about for reliability, security, performance, efficiency, and maintainability, they're all described as automatable detection, the automated detection of the violations of good architectural and coding practice that are included in those measures. Uh, this technical debt measure is built on top of it. Therefore, this will be automated. Uh, so all of our all of our standards from CIS that are approved through OMG are designed to be automated and for vendors of static analysis technologies uh, to be able to incorporate these into their technology. Has anybody created a, a tool set yet that actually adheres to the standards and companies can take that tool and plug it into their system. 
uh, a number of, of companies are putting that in place. Two of the sponsors of, of CISC are CAS Software. CAS is working to get all these standards in place. And uh, Synopsys, you might know them through Coverity, uh, the security tool. And and uh, they're, they're, I'm pretty sure they're working as well, especially on the security standards. So uh, there are people right now, the companies that are incorporating this into their standards. A lot of these measures are, a lot of these violations are challenging to detect. So in some cases, uh, your companies are having to develop additional capabilities in their analysis tools to detect some of these, especially some of these security violations. Are there any cherry picks that people can look at if they're coming to this new? Is there something that they can start with right away that would make an immediate difference? I, I th here's what I think. I, in terms of learning about them, go to the CISC website. Uh, we've got brochures. We've got a list of the 86 violations with descriptions. Uh, we've got the standards themselves. It's www.it-cisq.org. Uh, and there's a number, and you can join. The membership's free. You can join and then get access to all the materials. Uh, in terms of actually trying to get a jump start, let's say you haven't acquired a static analysis technology that provides the analysis capability. But frankly, I would take the document from the CIS website that describes the CISC violations. And I would make sure that my developers are trained on, on those violations. I mean, you've got the top 22 of the top 25 common weaknesses in the common weakness enumeration. Those are major security violations, and, and developers ought to know about them. They ought to know what kind of problems to avoid. If, if you know, they need to know what kind of problems they could have that would cause reliability problems uh, that would make software hard to maintain. Uh, and if they haven't learned that in, in their training, then they should, they should go look at these violations because they are severe violations that need to get fixed. And, uh, and companies should make sure that their folks are exposed to these and they learn about them and, and uh, try to avoid them when they're building software. You've got uh, 89 High, I should I shouldn't say high quality, but 89 vulnerabilities that you're looking at. The OWASP top 10 has built a reputation around the top 10 vulnerabilities. How do you align with that? Uh, OWASP top 10 are in the CWE top 25. Therefore, they're in. Uh, they're a part of it. Actually, I think OWASP was just added two more, so we'll be adding those into the CISC security uh, CIS security uh, measure. So they're very, the SANS Institute top 25, that's the top 25 CWEs. Uh, so we, we will maintain consistency with the common weakness enumeration world uh, and with, with OWASP and the SANS Institute top 25. One of the things that interests me the most personally is uh, A9 in the top 10, which is don't use uh, components with known vulnerabilities. Are you saying, yeah. <laughs> which seems obvious, right? We, th th you know, that one is stated in a way that, you know, that's that we wouldn't have a one that stated exactly that way. We would list the vulnerabilities, right? We would list cross-site scripting, buffer overflows, uh, SQL injection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and say you do not want these problems in your code. Uh, therefore, if you don't, if, if you go analyze a piece of open source and say, oh my gosh, it's got, it's got three of these CWE violations, these security violations, we're not going to use it, right? Then you've done A10 or A9. So we list the, the measures, the CISC measures are based on specific violations of good architectural encoding practice.
and uh, most of the OWASP top ten are in fact state specific things that that should not be uh, should not be in the code if it's going to be secure. With the knowledge that you have here, what keeps you up at night? Is there something that says, "Damn, we really need to get this fixed"? Well, I'll tell you what keeps me up at night is the demand for software across the world is so great. We've really run out of people that are really good at this. I mean, you go talk to the the Indian system integrators, outsourcers. You know, it, they used to be able to hire from the top, you know, the top universities, the Indian Institute of Technology. Uh, the Indi- I mean, the IITs were superb. But the demand was so great. And when they're hiring 10,000 people a quarter and trying to get them trained, you know, they're down to going to third, fourth tier universities. And so they, they can't maintain, it's difficult to maintain the same level of quality in the staff. That's true anywhere in the world. It's true in the U.S. Uh, it's true in Europe, uh, true in India and China. We just the, the demand for talent is so great that we just can't supply it all. And therefore, we're having to take people that are that really don't have the same level of talent. Therefore, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to create lots of defects. And we've got to detect those. And especially if it's in, you know, critical software, life critical, safety critical, business critical uh service critical software Uh, and so trying to educate uh, all these folks that we need building software to at least know what the most dangerous violations are that would cause reliability problems or security problems or, or what have you or make software really difficult to maintain having them know what these are and know how to avoid them in the code and giving them methods and tools that let them detect it when those mistakes are made uh, is, is fairly critical. Uh, right now, I think we, you know, one of the problems we have in the agile world is that, uh, you know, agile is a, it's a discipline. It's, it is a, a defined method. And uh, Jeff Sutherland, who is one of the founders of Scrum, which is one of the most popular agile methods, I heard Jeff su- some years ago at uh, the Agile Alliance conference say in a session he was holding that 70% of the companies he visited were doing Scrum Butt. He said, well, what's Scrum Butt? Well, I'm doing Scrum, but we don't hold daily bills, but we don't do daily stand-ups, but we don't. Okay, you're not doing Scrum. And, and that's a problem, in ag- and you know, I've heard a lot of, of, of companies complain that they, they realized that, that for some of their developers, Agile became an excuse for just hacking. They weren't using the Agile discipline the way they need to. Uh, and so that's a problem. I mean, Agile, DevOps, the, these, are, these are disciplines. They require tools. They require a strict way of going about doing the work uh, so that you don't create lots of bad code. Uh, and that you can detect it quickly when you do. And so, I mean, I think holding people to the rigor of the methods they're using becomes very important. Uh, and, you know, one of the problems with Waterfall, Waterfall has built some some of the greatest software ever put out was built with a Waterfall. Uh, Space Shuttle Avionics System, maybe the best piece of software ever built, was built with a strict Waterfall. The problem in Waterfall is when it wasn't done in a disciplined way and people just start hacking around and they started adding, adding in more requirements without adding in more time and this, that, and the other. And, and you can have the same problems in Agile methods that you and you had in the old Waterfall methods. I, I heard at some of the Agile conferences, developers complain that you know they just keep adding requirements into our sprint well 
the discipline was that once you decided on the, the stories you were going to, to execute in a sprint, you wouldn't add any more during the sprint. You'd add them in the following sprint. Well, apparently they were being added into the sprint. That gives you the same problem we had in Waterfall. Uh, and it's a violation of the discipline. So that, that keeps me up at night that we really need to have disciplined methods that people follow, rigorous, rigorous processes that are adhered to. And we need to make sure that the vast number of people that are that are building software really understand the kinds of problems uh, that they can create if they don't do it properly, and that they're they're they know how to avoid creating those problems. A concern of mine along the idea of education is there really is a lack of security training as part of the software curriculum. Are you finding that true? Absolutely. I mean, that's the, maybe the scariest part. And you look at all the breaches we're having in government and industry. Uh, it's just, a, you know, every day there's a, a new breach reported somewhere. And some of those are things that were so obvious. I mean, we still see SQL injection being a major source of of uh, unauthorized entry. We've known about SQL injection since the late 1990s. Why are those things still out there? Why haven't they been fixed? Uh, and so that's a major problem. And, and you know, I hear about these boot camps where they'll train programmers and new programmers in 90 days, and here they are. Oh, my Lord. Uh, there's no chance that they have adequate training, both in software engineering and in secure coding practices. The other item that scares me, too, is the vulnerability of medical devices. I know this is taking it off on a tangent. But that's part of software quality itself, to be able to walk down the hallway of a hospital and be able to hack the machinery that's being used in the medical uh, industry is scary as hell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you read this case study of Therac 25, which was a radiation uh, device using cancer treatment, this was 20 years ago or more, and it, it the software was so bad that it actually killed people. It killed several people. It was just so badly written that occasionally it would release lethal levels of radiation. Uh, and so that's one problem, that you have bad software that can, that can execute improperly inside a medical device and do something dangerous. Add on to that now the fact with the Internet of Things and the fact I've got embedded devices in people like pacemakers interacting with software that's outside the, the uh, person, uh, our software that's delivering medicine or whatever, and that that's not secure. That's even that's that just doubles my fear. Uh, and so yeah, there's so many different security and 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 reliability issues in in healthcare software, medical software, uh, both in terms of devices and in some of the service uh, issues. That that it's uh, again, it's a matter of discipline and it's a matter of people that are building that software, knowing what they're doing and having been properly trained in software engineering, uh, in the medical domain they're working in, because they do need to know uh, the issues in that domain, and in uh, proper secure coding techniques. The people that listen to this broadcast are part of a global community, a global audience. What's the final thing you would want to leave them with to say, if you are going to do something after listening to this broadcast, what would it be? Frankly, ethics first. And you're a professional, 
and you, and you're building software in many cases that the business will depend on or even more uh, passengers in an airplane or people in a hospital being undergoing surgery will depend on uh, lives might be at risk finances might be at risk but especially if if human health and safety is at risk you have an ethical responsibility to do the absolute best job you can don't ever let people rush you into getting something out that you don't feel comfortable with, that you don't feel is safe and secure if, in fact, there are severe consequences if you screwed it up. You know, your ethics first. Make sure you've done the right thing and make sure it's as good as you can make it. I mean, you're sure there'll be mistakes. Uh, hopefully we'll catch that in testing down the road. But make sure you do your job as ethically and professionally as you can. And uh, I think that if we if we took that to heart, we'd probably be a lot better off. Great. Thank you so much for the talk. Excited to hear what your team is working on. We'll be there May 8th in New York City for Hack NYC and look forward to the presentation. Thank you much. Bye bye. You have been listening to OWASP 24-7 with your host, Mark Miller and music provided by the George Cole Quintet. With support from the Nexus Community Project, supporting millions of open source developers worldwide.